I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GOAT team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, John, it's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It's another episode that you and I are not in the same place. We are still doing our social distancing of better than 1,400 miles. And you know what? While it is a good thing, it is a bad thing. So I'm glad that uh, once again, you and I are able to put a podcast together and I get to see your shining face every once in a while, virtually. So how are you doing? I'm surviving all this mess. I'll be glad when it's uh, over. But it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. You know, we're not going to get a vaccine until at least December or early next year. So that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Well, I've had to work. So I've been out. I did take a couple of trips on an airplane. I did my universal precautions of wearing a mask and social distancing and making sure that on the airplane I wiped everything down, even though the airline said they disinfect, which that's kind of a fallacy because they disinfect and the first person that gets on or coughs and sneezes, they infect the airplane. So I'm doing from a safety perspective, since I'm a safety guy, double and triple protection, if you will. And I think that that in and of itself, now that we've returned to the skies with the airlines and American Airlines coming out now and saying that they intend to fill their airplanes to capacity, it's even more critical that people who venture out, get on airplanes, do practice all of those precautions, masks, distancing, and of course, wiping things down, seatbelt, shoulder harnesses, if they have them, the seats and armrests, all the touchable spots. Of course, the TV screens and monitors and that kind of thing. Like you said, this isn't going away anytime soon. So you got to just take those precautions. I'm doing it and uh, it is what it is. I can't live my life in a bubble, unfortunately, because of the nature of our work. And so uh, I have to make sure that when I leave home, I don't come home with something I didn't take with me. Yes, I agree. And that's where our training in the biohazards that we had for accident investigation certainly come in handy. Absolutely. Because that's been pounded into our head repeatedly. The one thing that I was just astounded by is that I got to the airport at Denver International. They have signs everywhere. I mean, it's not like you have to look for the sign. It's flashing in your face. And it says masks are required in the airport. I was just floored by how many people just ignored it, disregarded it, never wore a mask. And it was just like, really? But what kind of got me was here are all these signs. It is a requirement in the airport, yet there weren't any mask police. That is, nobody was enforcing it. The expectation is, yeah, we expect you to do the right thing and wear the mask, but there was nobody enforcing it. So it's like, yeah, you know what? Who cares? And so it's just for whatever reason, these folks decided not to wear a mask. It is what it is. And that's why I think that people that are trying to do the right thing and definitely protect themselves, they wear the masks regardless of what the stigma might be. They, uh, they do their social distancing. You got to do your part. 
hopefully, like you said, they come up with a vaccine. And I think that's what people are hoping for is that I don't have to wear a mask. They're going to have a vaccine. I won't have to go through all this nonsense. Well, I guarantee this is going to be around for a while. I want people looking out for my best interest. We always talk about it in flying, John, where the reason I'm doing the right thing when I'm flying is so that I don't put anybody else in jeopardy who's flying in the same piece of airspace. What's an expectation we have as pilots and and mechanics, and uh, and hopefully the flying public will take that same attitude. Yes, hope springs eternally. Yeah, well, you know, biohazards, one of the big issues with biohazards and the protection is the fact that we were trying to prevent getting sick. And, And like you mentioned, we as investigators are trained in biohazard because we're going into high risk, high hazard environments. Every airplane crash has an element of risk and danger, if you will, because of fuels, hydraulic fluids, biohazard from the human debris, or we know that they're carrying toxic substances on airplanes. We know they're carrying medical things on aircraft that if they do crash, present a hazard to the investigative team. So we've all been protected now with uh, biohazard or protective suits and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I remember when I was doing value jet, that was a big concern because of the environment. Yes, that was uh, multiple levels. Just being out in the swamp, that biohazards from the swamp itself, natural hazards, not to mention the body hazards and not to mention the, the alligators. Yeah, there were definitely a lot of hazards in that accident. When we got notified that we had lost the DC-9 out in the Florida Everglades, I was on duty that day and got the phone call. And at that time, we were kind of on our own as as the investigator in charge to try and get everybody up on a conference call and start to formulate a plan with an accident like this. We didn't know the extent of where the airplane was in relation to solid land. They just said that the airplane had gone down in the Everglades. And when you start that initial mental modeling of, okay, it's in a big swamp somewhere, it's hard to really formulate the best course of action or plan of action because you don't know the actual environment. So as pictures were coming in from the news media, because they were flying helicopters over the area, it became very evident that this was not going to be the typical run-of-the-mill drive up to the accident site and do your thing. Being the investigator in charge on that particular accident, it was going to be up to me to try and formulate, with the help of a lot of good people, how best we are going to accomplish the mission of accident investigation in an environment that is not very friendly. Yeah, that certainly was a challenge down there for everybody concerned. And in fact, we have a lot of questions around that accident that came in from viewers or listeners who have commented about many, many accidents, some of which we haven't even talked about on the show. But maybe it'd be worthwhile to have a description from the time you got the call and what kind of preparations you had to make. Everybody else is getting their gear together to get at the airport at the appropriate time. You as the IIC, you've got to do that as well as coordinating with some of the staff back at the headquarters and with the local people to try to get everything ready so when you hit the ground in Miami, in this case, you will be ready to keep moving and and start the investigation. Give a little recap on what you did that particular day. Well, that particular week in May, I was the investigator in in charge on duty. And so we used to put out a go team sheet every week with an IIC and then all the subject matter experts from the board who were going to be in charge of system structures, power plants, meteorology, things like that. I got the call from the FAA comm center at about 2.30. This accident happened about 2.15 in the afternoon. I get a call around 230 240 the initial information was we lost a uh, dc9 
value jet DC-9 shortly after takeoff out of Miami. So I get everybody spooled up. I get the calls made to, at that time, my bosses to get them up on the line. The FAA, their communication center, was the one that would put all the, we called it the bridge line, where we got everybody up on the bridge. Once we had all of the players from both the NTSB and the FAA on the call, we started getting briefed by the local FAA folks and some of the local police, fire rescue sheriff's department folks as to what everyone knew with regard to not only the initial phase or at least the the early parts of the flight, the loss of the aircraft, some of the information that was coming in from witnesses. There were a couple of witnesses who actually were in airplanes, small airplanes flying in the area that watched the airplane. So they were able to give a description as to where the airplane went down, the, the environment that the airplane went down in. And that call is a good, I mean, it, it's complex in that you have so many people asking questions. You're trying to keep it all straight. You're trying to keep some semblance of organization, but you're trying to get all the key information. Meanwhile, while you're doing that, we used to have a two-hour launch window. So from the time of notification, it was always expected that the team would show up at Reagan National Airport where the FAA hangered all the airplanes. Hangar 6 became very famous in the NTSB and FAA vocabulary because that was the FAA's hangar facility for all of their aircraft. And when there was a major investigation and a launch by the team, the FAA, 98 99% of the time, would provide transportation service for the team on one of the airplanes. And in this particular instance, we had to get the team to the airport. We wanted to get out of there and get down there that afternoon if we could. And so we got the team together. We were at the airport by around five o'clock or thereabouts. We were immediately loaded on the FAA's Gulfstream G4. And Bob Francis was the board member at the time who went down with us. And so while we were en route to Miami, it was a lot of coordination trying to go on. Fortunately, we had sat phone on the airplane so I could stay in communication with uh, our folks back in D.C. who were getting information updated from the FAA. And then I would brief the board member and the team. So it was a matter of trying to get a lot of coordination done before we hit the ground Because once we hit the ground, it was going to be mass hysteria in Bedlam because of the news media, because of all the things that were going to be expected of the team to not only start that night, but then going forward. So it was it was one of those things. And and on top of it, there was a TV crew that had been given permission to document a go team launch. And it just so happened that value jet was the launch that this TV crew was able to record. So not only do we have our official duties, but of course now we got cameras recording everything that we were doing. It was one of the the more complex early parts or initial stages of a launch because there was so much activity. It was interesting, John, because we got into the Miami area, and before we landed, I asked the crew to go fly over the accident site so I could size up what the environment was. I wanted to see it for myself because I was going to have to work with others to formulate the plan on how we were going to investigate this accident. This was not an accident you could drive to necessarily. It was 12 miles offshore off the Tamiami Highway. We had to uh, then eventually access a staging area near the accident site by driving 12 miles on a one-way levee. And so all of these transportation issues had to be coordinated and figured out before we could actually start the investigation process out of the accident site. So fortunately, by this point in time, this was 1996, by that point in time, The NTSB had stood up their command center, and those folks were in business to help you 
and everyone else with some of the logistics. And I know we had staff that that would book the hotel rooms and get the rent-a-cars and arrange for basic office equipment to be uh, located inside the hotel area that we wanted secure, as we couldn't use the, for example, the copy machine that might be available in the hotel for fear of compromising any of the material that was copied and would be stored on the memory of the recorder or the copy machine. We were fortunate because we got into the Radisson Mart Hotel, which is right near the airport. The entire team was staying there and all of the support cast. So we ended up living in that hotel for about seven months, six months while we were doing our investigation. They were very accommodating. They helped us out a lot. We had a lot of resources available. I I was also in that hotel with you for part of that seven months, and they were very, very accommodating. Anything we needed, they were right there for us. Yeah, and when you're working with a team like that, you have a number of players coming and going. We were rotating people in. We had to make sure that we always had accommodations. We had to have levels of security because the families were trying to stay at that hotel or trying to hang out at the hotel so that they could get a lot of information firsthand. And then, of course, the press was staking out the hotel, trying to get whatever tidbits of information. And, of course, like any accident, of course, the press is going to do whatever it takes to try and get the piece of tidbit information that upstages someone else. And so we always had to have security because you never knew in the briefings that we had from both the organizational meeting and then our progress meetings, it was an emphasis every single day, watch your mouth. People would be talking on the phone and they'd be talking loud. There's a reporter standing there taking notes of what was investigators talking about. We'd sit in the restaurant. We'd start talking about things that we did, activities, what we needed to do. And of course, you didn't know whether it was a family member sitting on the other side of the wall or at the next table or a reporter. And there were times and it was uh, it was of concern that I saw stuff on TV or read stuff in the paper. It's like, where did they get that? And of course, it was because somebody was listening to a conversation and the information was juicy to them. Problem is, one, it was taken out of context a lot of the time, or two, they built a whole storyline around something that had nothing to do with this accident. Somebody was talking about something else, and they believed it was related to the accident and made a whole story about it. Yeah, I don't think the average person can can comprehend the feeling of being under attack by the press that comes from a major accident. They come at you from every different direction, and they're looking for information. This 24-hour news cycle has increased the pressure on them considerably, and it it just trickles down. I mean, hiding in the hallways, trying to listen to conversations, and planting microphones in areas so that they could overhear the people talk. I even had one investigation that I was part of that they had a suction cup microphone that they put on a window to listen to the conversation in the conference room that we were in. And if somebody, one of the people didn't open up the shades because it was late in the day and getting dark and open up the curtains in the, in the hall, we never would have known it. So when you look at the enormity, I mean, just the initial phase of of getting the investigation started was daunting because there were so many players involved, not only with the team that went down there, but now you're coordinating with local county people and city people and state people, both feds and, and local government. And then, of course, the politicians started coming out of the woodwork because it, the accident happened in their district. And, and so there were a lot of different directions that this investigation process had to – I had to navigate it. I mean, I had no choice. I had to deal with all these folks. The good thing is about having a board member like yourself on scene, and in this case it was Bob Francis, I could pawn off all the politicians and the political folks – to him to deal with 
because I didn't have time to go brief the local county commissioners on what we do, how we're going to do it, and things like that. I had to deal with all of those folks that could make things happen. So dealing with the police fire rescue folks, what we were going to do, what was going to be expected, what equipment we were going to need, how were we going to get the team back and forth out to the accident site every day. Once we were out in the staging area, how are we going to accommodate everybody? I mean, it was May, so 95 degrees, 95% humidity. I mean, those are not the ideal working conditions. I had to worry about the safety of the folks out there. Why? Because we had numerous cases of heat stroke while we were out there. Even though we were working in the water, you could only be out there because we're in poopy suits. You're sweating and your body temperature is going up. I had to set protocols because it was thunderstorm season in Florida. We couldn't be working when there was a thunderstorm moving through. So anytime we got a report or we could visually see thunderstorms within five miles of the accident site, I had to clear the water. We had to get everybody out so that we didn't have any issues with potential lightning strikes uh, affecting the team. And then, of course, because it was the Everglades, I had to worry about the natural habitat of alligators and snakes and horse flies that, you know, get two of them, they'd carry you away. I mean, there was just a lot of things. And then, of course, like we talked about, we had to protect the team who was going to be working on scene in the water every single day. We had to worry about, of course, all the biohazards, the jet fuel, the the sky drawl, and then, of course, the human debris from the impact of the accident. So there were a lot of coordinations that needed to take place. The first basically three weeks I was there, I didn't sleep because the team would be out once we got the the process going. The team would be out during the day. I was typically out there every day on scene, either making decisions, coordinating or in the water. And then at night, I had to call everybody in. We were using federal resources. We were using the Army Corps of Engineers. We were using the Air Force. We were using uh, some Navy assets. And then, of course, the, uh, the local police fire rescue folks. So at night, we would plan how we were going to conduct the next day's activity. Well, we had to do that. And usually those meetings lasted most of the night. You'd catch a nap and then start the whole process all over again. And because of the inaccessibility of the wreckage and having to try and get creative on how we were going to recover the wreckage because we couldn't use the typical uh, recovery methods like you would for, let's say, TWA, where the airplane crashed in the water and the wreckage sank to the bottom. You could go in there with large recovery assets, ROVs. You could go in with divers if the water was shallow enough to recover those parts. We couldn't use those methods out in the Everglades. Well, you left out one very important one that people, uh, local citizens always rise to the occasion. And we had one company that really did the yeoman's work, and that was the airboat folks. Holiday airboats, they were outstanding. Without them, this investigation, for lack of better explanation, would have gone on probably twice as long. They literally shut down their tourist business to accommodate the team and provided all of their airboat assets to us for as long as we needed them to conduct the investigation because we did need to move team members from the levee, from our staging area, offshore, out to the accident site. And these folks provided the airboats that moved the team and then brought parts back that were recovered by hand. They would put them on the airboats and they would move them back to the levee where we went through a decontamination process, put them on a truck, and then they were shipped to the Tamiami Airport where we were doing the physical reconstruction of the aircraft in a hangar. Yes. Well, you know what? People always looking for side things that happen. So uh, we have a couple of things that happen, one of which was quite funny, on that road, on that service road, going out to the staging area. Do you recall that one? Yes, we had a bit of an overzealous (laughs) PR guy with us, government affairs guy, 
who was very good at his job, always was very enthusiastic, wanted to be right in the, the middle of the action. We were getting ready to blast off. So we had this staging area where we had helicopters that would move the team or a part of the team via the helicopter out to the staging area. And then the rest of the team members either used airboats, pontoon boats, that kind of stuff to get out to the accident site. But we would meet every morning before we took off out to the site and where the staging area was, it looked like the Super Bowl because of the media. It was just a media fest. Well, the fortunate thing is we had a natural barrier because we had the canal between our staging area and where the media was set up. So they were using telephoto lenses and boom mics and that kind of stuff to listen in our conversation. So we would be standing there briefing, getting ready, and we had a very attentive and interactive government affairs person with us. And he was a great guy. He pulled up and got out of the car and wanted to jump right in the middle of the action. And we're all standing there and he was leaning up against his car while the news media had all the cameras running and we're talking all of a sudden his car started to move. And by the time we all realized what was going on, the car had gone over the embankment and into the canal. And I mean, it's one of those moments where it's like, what just happened? And of course, everybody's looking at everybody and we're all looking at uh, our government affairs guy like, what'd you do? So the United States government ended up buying national rental car, a brand new car, after we got it fished out of the uh, canal. Every accident, there seems to be those little light moments where you Things happen that cause you to laugh sometimes or cry sometimes, but they do happen in accident sites just like they happen in life. Look, these are very tragic situations. One of the things about the NTSB or an organization similar to the NTSB is that it's a reactive agency. The agency is sending off a team once an aircraft accident or any kind of other accident. It could be trains, could be buses, that kind of stuff. But it's a reactive agency, so you're sending out a team. You're coming together with tens of people, hundreds of people. And in ValueJet's case, we had a 1,000 people in some form or fashion working this accident under the highest stress conditions. They're very emotional conditions. It's very stressful. And, of course, the expectations are very high that you got to get a lot of stuff done and you got to get it done now so that we can figure out what's going on. And people want answers right now. The process takes a lot of time and they don't want to wait 18 months to figure out what for us to tell them what happened. They want to know now what caused this accident, what caused this accident. So you're under a lot of stress and you're trying to coordinate as the investigator in charge a lot of different person. You're not managing people. You're managing personalities. You're managing agendas because everyone's got an agenda. The board's agenda is we're going to investigate. We're going to figure out what's going to happen or what happened and how we're going to prevent it from happening again. But you have special interests. You have local folks. You have parties to the investigation that have different agendas. And it's like herding cats sometimes. You have to make sure that everybody is moving in the same direction. You can't have an independent investigations. If there are independent investigations going on, you got to kick people back to center. One of the big issues that I had to deal with, because uh, we have the FBI involved, they respond to all the accidents until it's determined that it is, in fact, an accident and not an intentional act because there was some overtones early on that it could have been something placed on the airplane. So, I'm working very closely with the FBI and one of these situations that cropped up once we started to recover wreckage was some of the people that were helping us recover wreckage wanted a souvenir. And we found that a key part of the airplane we were looking for, a circuit breaker panel, was missing. We knew that we had recovered it and then all of a sudden we couldn't find it. Through several days and working with the FBI and interviewing a lot of people, we ended up finding out that one of the people that was helping recover the wreckage just happened to take that piece of the airplane 
as a souvenir. And at three o'clock in the morning, we ended up paying him a visit with the FBI, myself and an FAA representative. They got a warrant to go into his house and we found the circuit breaker panel in a closet. It was by no malicious intent that we later found out. He just wanted a souvenir and it just so happened it it was a key part that we were looking for because one of the issues that uh, we needed to ferret out was whether or not this in-flight fire that we knew about was started either by an electrical circuit because there were some concerns about a 50 amp breaker on the airplane having caught fire and there was some history of that. But it was ironic that it was that part that was key for us. It just so happened this guy innocently, but again, <laughs> while it was innocently taken, it's a federal offense because he was taking parts of an aircraft accident. And it cost him a lot of money to get a lawyer and to get through that process. Yeah, absolutely. So you're dealing with a lot of sideshows while still trying to manage the process and keep people moving in the right direction and accomplishing a lot of different tasks in a very short period of time. You have to be efficient. You don't have time to dilly-dally around. And then, of course, there were a lot of issues when it came to money because we were having to utilize a lot of different assets. We were going to have to spend money to recover this wreckage. And shortly after ValueJet happened, we had already been down there a little over a month. And then all of a sudden, we had TWA 800 happen. And so now you have two major investigations running in parallel. TWA ended up absorbing a lot of the board's assets, financial assets, because of that investigation. So we were competing, if you will, for resources out of the NTSB, both monetary and manpower. And that, too, was a coordinated dance because in order for me to continue the investigation in Miami and get things done in a timely manner, there were assets I needed out of the NTSB in Washington. Well, they were already expended up in New York with TWA 800. So you're having to make do with what you have, and you have to get very creative and resourceful. Yes, those, both of those accidents were in areas that required a huge amount of support. I mean, the U.S. Navy provided a ton of support for TWA 800, and uh, we promised to pay the Navy back. And the last I heard, that never happened. We never paid them back. It's a lot of money. We had to get a supplemental budget request because of that. And so when I was having to spend some money on ValueJet to recover the wreckage because we needed to get some heavy assets in there, the main impact crater. The wreckage was spread over a 1,000 yards one direction and 800 yards another direction. You couldn't just take big, heavy assets out there because of the construction of the environment or at least the, the Everglades themselves. They have varying levels of water. They have sawgrass. There is capstone. It's a limestone capstone or cap rock that is underwater. And so we had to have low draft barges, barges, huge barges that could support heavy equipment that draft in about two to three feet of water, because that was really the only margin we had to work with. And that cost money. Well, with all of our assets being drained and directed up to New York and TWA 800, you have to get very creative and negotiate some deals with insurance companies and some of the local officials getting donated services and a variety of other things. And so as the investigator in charge, that was my responsibility because I couldn't screw around. I couldn't wait. We had to get things done and decisions had to be made. I had to clear a lot of stuff through Washington. There was a lot of reluctance, but that's the process. Or literally, if we went through doing the bidding and all the other nonsense, hell, we'd still be there. Even on the public side, most people don't realize when you have an, an accident that happens in remote areas, who's in charge? You have county sheriffs, then you may have a local jurisdiction's sheriff. You'll probably have a lot of play from police 
from the jurisdiction which the airplane left. We had that in New York City, and it was uh, Giuliani took control as the mayor of New York. He did a lot, and a lot of the communities out in Long Island deferred to him because he has a very strong personality. That helped us a lot out in Long Island, and you had to deal with that yourself down there with the, the county police and the Miami-Dade County police. So they have sheriff, you have county police, and then you have the regular police for Miami, which also wanted to be in the game because the airplane left Miami. There's a lot of people involved from Miami. So you have all these players for both the fire department, the police department, and uh, politicians all want to be in there for various reasons of their own. And you have to deal with it. And sometimes it's just not only frustrating, it bogs everything down. And that's why, as the investigator in charge, everybody's looking to you to make decisions, and you got to do them in a timely manner. Now, one of the things is you can never have an ego in one of these things. Yeah, you carry a big gold badge, and yeah, you're the guy in charge. But you need the assistance and the coordination from all these various players. And I would tell these folks every single day, twice a day, look, here's what I'm thinking. This is the best course of action as I see it. If you think there's a better way to do it, we can accomplish the mission more efficiently. We can utilize different assets. Look, tell me, (laughs) I'll change my plan right now. It doesn't matter to me. I just need to get this job done. We need to work together. And one of the big issues was we still were doing victim recovery because of the nature. This aircraft went into the water at better than 400 knots. There was total destruction of the aircraft and everything from the the tip of the nose to the tip of the tail. And so we were having to do victim recovery at the same time. And I had to coordinate with the coroner's office because they have a protocol for recovering victim remains and that kind of stuff. You can't just go in there and start pulling parts. You had to document not only the part stuff for accident investigation, but the coroner needed to have victim identification and recovery processes as well so that we knew exactly where these remains were found. So they could use that location, uh, possibly a seat or some sort of identifying mark to determine who that person or persons may have been. And so this was a very choreographed event. And again, we tried to use some high-tech methods. We had the Air Force come in at night and fly low level and do infrared scanning of the accident site. The problem is they would come in low level, but because the sawgrass in that swamp held heat, even at two and three and four in the morning, there was still a lot of heat trapped in the sawgrass. And so it blew up the infrared. And so that was because we were looking for hot spots. That is, we were hoping that during the day, metal parts would be heated up. We could map that and then go figure out where these parts were. But because the sawgrass retained the heat, that was a worthless method of trying to find parts. And we went through a variety of different things. We were trying to use side scan sonar. But again, because of the varying depths of the water, because of the sawgrass and the other vegetation that was in there, we could never get a mapping uh, using a side scan sonar like they used in TWA 800 to map the wreckage on the on the ocean floor. We haven't said anything about this yet, but while this was going on, because the press was pretty hot on ValueJet because of their previous record, a number of previous accidents and a number of previous major incidents, the press was pretty hot on, on ValueJet. And in, in their attempt to defend themselves, they mobilized a, a bunch of their flight attendants and the mother of the captain, they were all out there giving statements, cranking up the press, cranking up the heat, so to speak. That was having an impact on the investigation itself. To the point where I had to call the president of ValueJet and the attorney for SaberTech, who was the third-party maintenance organization that had taken oxygen generators off of several other airplanes that were eventually going to end up in the value jet fleet and these oxygen generators ended up in boxes not properly made inert they ended up on the 
accident aircraft. Well, these guys got into a war of words, pointing the finger, and they did it in the press. I called them both in. We had a very frank discussion. I was not real happy because they were creating a major distraction in the investigation because I was having to deal with them while trying to choreograph the accident process. I called them in the first time. I gave them a warning. It happened again. I called them in the second time. And it wasn't until the third time, because I was trying to be a nice guy, I was trying to work with them, that I threatened them. And I said, you do this again. I see you on TV. I read about you in the press. You and your party status are done. You're no longer going to be part of this investigation. And when you lose party status in an NTSB investigation, that's a major blow. One, because you're not getting firsthand information. But two... It puts everybody on notice. You can't be trusted. Yes, and we've done that a few times, had to do that a few times. Absolutely. As a result of that, the problems you had with that, when we did the public hearing, before I left Washington, I had a run-in with the attorney about some of the witnesses, six witnesses. And I know you had similar. I was in New York, and I had to come back down to Washington to meet with the attorneys. And their card that they were going to play at this meeting was the fact that they were going to withhold the six people that worked on this airplane's testimony because of Fifth Amendment rights. Yeah, they were all going to plead the fifth. Right, yeah. which is fine. Because of that, we subpoenaed the president of the company. And because he was the president and it wasn't direct testimony, he didn't have Fifth Amendment rights. We, in fact, did subpoena him into the hearing. Also, because of all that goings on, if you will, all those different side events. When we set up the hearing, I asked for federal marshals, which is our prerogative. And we had, in addition to the FBI, we had uh, a couple of federal marshals on scene for the entire hearing that was held in Miami, just in case. Because the key players that we wanted to interview who pleaded the fifth, they were key to our investigation because they were the maintenance folks that had taken these oxygen generators off these other airplanes. And so their testimony was going to be valuable in determining how this hazardous material got on to the accident flight. And I know that we were trying to protect everybody's safety, but it is one of those things where that valuable information wasn't going to be gleaned by a method that we thought would be at least efficient. Yes. We did get the information, but it took a little more work. Yeah, we ended up having to backdoor a lot of information. We had to talk to other folks. But to this day, John, to this day, two of those folks that pleaded the fifth eventually skipped the country right after our public hearing. They disappeared. And to this day, one of those guys who was probably the most valuable as far as information is concerned still resides on the FBI's most wanted list. They updated the information on Balenzuela just recently, this past year, and he is still on the FBI's most wanted list. And they've been, they've been tracking basically his movements in a general scheme because they don't have specifics, but they believe he's in Germany now working for another aviation company there. And so this is, I mean, you know, when you look at when ValueJet happened and you still have a guy who had uh, a lot of knowledge, that's one of those backstories that you know people either didn't know about or have long forgotten about. But this guy is still on the FBI's most wanted list. You touched upon it, bringing material. I'm reading the questions that some of the folks had sent in, and it jogged my memory for one. We brought all those pieces into the airport, and we were the fortunate one to get a brand new hangar to put them in. The people who owned the hangar had not even moved into it yet. There was a couple of interesting events that occurred in there, and maybe you want to share those with everybody. Well, it was interesting because when we were looking for a facility, where we could bring the wreckage to because we had to get creative on how we were going to get the wreckage out of there. We ended up setting up a decon station out near the accident site on the levee where we were staging out of. So we had to decontaminate all the parts that came out of the swamp. 
we ended up putting them on a truck. There had to be a lot of coordination because it was a one-way levy. You either were driving to the staging area or driving from, but the levy wasn't wide enough that if you had two vehicles coming head on, there was no place to pull over and let the other vehicle. So it, And that did unfortunately happen one day where the coordination broke down. We had two vehicles meet head on and somebody had to drive backwards on that levy for about four miles to an area where they it was wide enough for them to allow the other vehicle to pass. But that kind of coordination, but we needed, once we got the parts out of the Everglades, we had to take them somewhere. So we were looking for a facility at, a, at an airport close by, and it happened to be Tamiami Airport. We talked to the airport director, and they said, well, we have several facilities here, but when we examined them, they weren't going to accommodate what we needed. All of a sudden, there was a brand new hangar being built, and they said, well, the owners of this hangar haven't moved in yet. And in fact, we're still waiting for the certificate of occupancy. So we met with the owners, and we cut a deal to pay them money for the use of this brand new, beautiful hangar that they hadn't even broken in yet. We ended up breaking in, <laughs> breaking it in for them. And I'm not sure that they were very happy. I mean, we did what we could for as long, and we had it for a long time. We had that hangar for seven, eight months. I spent several weeks in there, if not more. And I was struck by the first time I walked into that hangar by the aroma. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, it was quite, quite pungent. Well, we had all these parts coming out of the Everglades. They were waterlogged. I mean, we tried to decontaminate them out of the accident site. But again, you ha it's like having, you know, a stinky wet dog times six million. I mean, these parts, all of the materials, they all took on the, the smell of the jet A and the sky drawl and, and just the, the environment of the Everglades. And now you put it in closed quarters in a hangar where it was hot, it was humid. A lot of times we had the hangar door closed so that we could protect because the media was out there trying to shoot pictures of us in the hangar doing our thing. And next thing you know, I mean, it's set in a, just like having uh, water in your basement. If it stagnates for a long period of time, your basement's going to take on the smell of a swamp. Well, that was that brand new, beautiful hangar. And I'm not sure those folks <laughs> aren't to this day still regretting ever letting us utilize their space, even though they did make some money on it. Yeah, help offset their cost a little bit. Any other thoughts that you have? The big thing here is that there is always a backstory, John, with every single accident, the behind the scenes that no one ever sees, the coordination. I was blessed to have worked with some of the greatest people to this day I still know and stay in touch with from Metro Dade Police Fire Rescue, the FBI, because we all are thrown in this big pot under the worst of circumstances, you size each other up. You see how you're going to work with them. You become very dependent on them. They become very dependent on you in order for us to all accomplish our respective missions. And it does take having a command and control type personality. You can't let your ego get out in front of you. And we see this sometimes. I still see it to this day. One of the things about the backstory are those memories. I mean, these folks, we would get together. Yes, when we were down there, Miami knew who we were. We could walk into any restaurant or any bar in South Beach or Miami or whatever. People knew who we were because they saw us on TV every single day. I mean, they offered us free meals. I couldn't keep guys working seven days a week, 24-7 without having the ability to go out and eat or basically decompress. But we were accommodated by some great people down there, and they're memorable. I had to send people home. This is a very emotional thing. And when we were out in the Everglades slugging around in the swamp trying to recover parts, there were a lot of unaccompanied minors on that flight. And when you start to see the pictures, the toys, the clothing, and that kind of stuff, I had some people who emotionally could not handle that, and I had to send them home. 
because they couldn't do their job and I didn't want to expose them to any more emotional trauma. That's the role of the investigator in charge. You're not just out there to kick tin. You're out there to manage a group of people. I mean, I had a number of FAA guys that once they got heat stroke, I could never let them back into the investigation because I didn't want to compromise their safety. That's the role. Those are the things that are going on. The only thing that the press sees is the front side of the investigation. The investigators going out there kicking tin, walking around, taking pictures and that kind of stuff. But there is a lot of things going on behind the scenes that have to be dealt with in order for the process to be efficient and effective. Yes, I remember the friendships were formed by with the Miami detectives, police detectives. And many years after the accident, you and I were down there and actually broke bread with a couple of those guys. Yep. To this day, they're the greatest people I've ever met. They couldn't do enough to, to help us and accommodate us. And that friendship, while we don't see each other or talk to each other every day, you and I could go down there tomorrow and meet up with them. And it would be like we never had a gap in this friendship. Yeah, good people. Public servants that don't get the credit that they deserve. Absolutely. And we saw that when we did the public hearing. I mean, <laughs> and again, you and I got into our, our own personal battle, but it was one of those types of battles that actually added a little levity to a very tragic and serious circumstance when uh, you were trying to outdo me with your ties. Oh, that was funny. You knew that, you know, I mean, people saw the ties I wore and I had already established myself with my ties and you decided that you were going to take me on. And <laughs> there were some famous words that you said, something like, let the battle begin or. I remember were, saying I surrender. <laughs> yes. Well, one, one, one of the staff people came up to me with a tie. And that was the first day after lunch that I wore the tie, and they found that tie somewhere. I know you saw it, but you didn't say anything. That night, they went out and got another one. And the next morning, I showed up with a different tie, and it, it was just as loud as the first one. And that's when you declared war. It wasn't long after that I surrendered. Because there was no way you were going to outdo me and my ties. And actually, I was happy with some of that because I saw a lot of smiles on the family's faces. That doesn't happen very often in hearings. And again, to this day, we've established, I mean, I still have a relationship with the kids of the first officer. I had met them out at the accident site. They confronted me in the halls of the hotel several days after the accident. They were very young at the time in their early 20s. And I, through the years, had stayed in touch with them. And in fact, the first officer's son, Jeff, had actually moved here to Colorado and went to work in the uh, school system. He was a teacher, went to work in the school system, and I used to get together for lunch with him periodically. His sister was still in Alabama. I would stay in touch with her. And the mother of the captain, I also stayed in touch with her because periodically over the years, they'd have questions or couldn't resolve issues, couldn't really get that closure. And to this day, I still have a relationship with these folks. Yeah, I too have talked yeah. to the captain's mother. I went out and visited her. And I also, there was a minister whose son and daughter-in-law and other members of the ministry were on that airplane. And I still stay in touch with them. I still talk to them two, three times a year. And just recently I did. I mean, those are the relationships that you establish. I don't know if that takes place anymore today, but I know that I stayed in touch with the first officer's parents of the first officer on uh, American 4184, the uh, ATR-72 that crashed in Roselawn, Indiana. He was a young guy, 23 years old. For years, I stayed in touch with them. I periodically get emails from people who see me on TV and a lot of the TV shows and stuff telling me, hey, my son, my daughter, my wife, whatever, was on this airplane that you investigated. You know, appreciate all the work you and the team did, this, that, and the other. I have a question for you. I mean, that's the kind of relationship because we're not just out there kicking tin and coming up with a probable cause. You're trying to provide answers to people that don't 
have a very good understanding or an understanding at all about the complexities of what aviation is all about. Are a way to get answers. Exactly. Because federal agencies can be very cold and impersonal. Oh, well, you know, as soon as the investigation's done, the book is closed, they move on, and they leave all of those people behind. And that's one thing I would never do. And I've always told everybody I've ever investigated or has been part of an investigation or has lost a loved one, it's like, you got a question, here's my email. Drop me an email. I'll be happy to talk to you about it. Well, we've gone on and on about the value jet and the role of the investigator and some of the fancy or funny side stories. I think that we've covered it, so maybe we should move on and and work on another accident and try to fill in some blanks on that. Yeah, the big thing for any investigation, and we've been very blessed here in the United States that we haven't had a major investigation in a very long time. It's a testament to our aviation system here. There are still accidents that have been occurring outside the United States. Of course, the 737 MAX accidents were very notable. We recently lost an airplane in Pakistan as well. These are tragic circumstances. And, And while some of the foreign investigative authorities don't necessarily run their their investigative process the way we do here in the United States. The one thing about the NTSB and in the process is that it is very thorough. It is very complex. It is very dynamic. And while yeah, there is some frustration that we need to know and we need to know now kind of attitude because we live in a world of instant gratification, 24-hour news cycles and Twitter and Instagram and cell phones and picture everything. The fact is, in order for us to enhance aviation safety and do it in a proper way, the investigative process must be thorough and methodical. And while it is frustrating sometimes that the information is slow in coming out, it has to be vetted because the last thing we want to do in aviation is make statements that you have to change a day, two days, two months later. That has happened in a couple of NTSB investigations in the recent past where information was presented without proper context, without proper vetting, and the boards had to retract or ignore what they said the day before and move on like it didn't happen. And you and I are going to talk about a couple of those types of accidents in the future because that too is important because when you're watching TV and you're watching the investigators or whoever's giving the briefing from the safety board, people are hanging on every word and those words have to be vetted and that can skew public perception. And of course, even the industry, we've demonstrated that with the 737 max accidents where we dissected the Indonesian accident. Everybody was cocked and loaded to blame the airplane, but the facts don't necessarily support that. Yes, it's unfortunate today that we have a growing number of accidents and incidents that are a result of pilots making mistakes or mechanics making mistakes. John, you and I are going to have a show here probably in the next week or two. Pakistan, I cannot believe a lot of us in the business have known this for a very long time. The minister in Pakistan says that 30% of their pilots aren't qualified. (laughs) They don't hold the requisite qualifications to be pilots. I mean, we've heard those rumblings for years. Pakistan is not the only place where that's happening. There are other foreign countries where you have a lot of people in the front end of an airplane that have no business even being near an airplane. One of the things that you and I touched on when we started looking at the Indonesian accident and, of course, the Ethiopian accident is the qualifications of the flight crew. This is a demonstration of the points we were trying to make. And when you have two pilots who crash an airplane with all sorts of warnings, they forget to put the landing gear down. Then they try to fly a sick airplane and they lose it and they kill everybody on board, basically. And all of a sudden now, their qualifications are in question 
It's like, how did they ever get there? I just get wound up over the fact that what was their government doing? How did these people make it through the system? That warm body filling the seat. And then they still want to blame an airplane. It's not the airplane. Trust me. The airplane was only doing what these guys directed it to do. Good, bad, or indifferent. So we're going to have a show about these kinds of issues that, again, don't make it out into the public light necessarily. And when they do, it's in a very small focused venue. I mean, I'll guarantee that the general public doesn't really understand that Pakistan has these qualification issues. Yes. Yes. In fact, I started putting together a little list of possible future podcasts and some of which don't involve accidents, but involve minor accidents, if you will, no injuries or minor injuries but really indicate problems with our training and, and uh, our procedures. So I hope to be doing some of that in the not-too-distant future. Well, everything that we talk about, a lot of it is based on trends from accidents and incidents or at least events that could lead to an accident or incident. But for whatever reason, the system was more proactive in identifying and correcting this before it led to a disaster. And that's really the whole purpose of, of what we try to do with this show. We try to identify those issues and talk about these things that a lot of groups, a lot of the media doesn't want to talk about because it's the worst side. It's the bad side. It's that whisper side of the industry. And you and I bring it to light because it is it is concerning. I mean, again, Congress had these hearings. They beat up on the administrator of the FAA. It was obvious in listening to that, that these people had their own personal agenda. They went into attack mode without having all the, the real facts. They created facts or they created a storyline around a factoid and then attacked the administrator of the FAA. And then even after the administrator tried to explain stuff, they went off half cocked, not really understanding what he was saying. These are the kinds of things that we need to fix. If you're going to make recommendations, you're going to change policy, you're going to create regulations, you better do it with a good basis of fact. And some of this stuff, kind of like the 1500-hour rule, the ATP rule that came out of Continental Express years ago, that was a fallacy. You and I are in the business. We're investigating guys who have a hell of a lot more flight time than that that are still crashing airplanes. I know pilots with a lot less flight time who are outstanding pilots at 500 hours. So these are the kinds of issues that you and I try to talk about all the time, bring to light, create a discussion, bring attention to it. Let's get a resolution, but let's have a, a solid basis for that resolution, not just some emotional solution, which a lot of times that's what these solutions are. So that's why I always appreciate us having this discussion and hopefully uh, the folks that are listening to our show get that same feeling and they get a little more education or it gets them thinking or they, they choose to take it up as a debate as well in their own respective venues. Because a lot of the things that we talk about, John, affect a lot of other industries, not just aviation. And these are the kinds of situations that I appreciate always talking with you about. Yeah, and it's oftentimes lost. Some people, the general aviation community, may look at a value jet accident and say, well, there's nothing in there for me to learn. All right, but right off the bat, this, when the emergency came up and they realized how much trouble they have, their reaction was to return to the base that they left. And they overflew at least two airports that they could have put it down and may have changed the outcome in that event. The initial request to turn the airplane around Fort Lauderdale Executive Airport was right off the nose. And they could have nosed it over and been in there and, and probably saved a lot of lives. But they didn't plan that. And it's common, isn't it? Pilots always want to return to where they came from. We saw that with Swiss Air 111, where they had an in-flight fire. They were dumping fuel rather than just make a, an overweight landing. Get the airplane on the ground. Deal with it later. To hell if it's overweight. Who cares? Break the landing gear, but at least... You're going to survive the event. Yes. Well, that's all fodder for future shows. Absolutely. Well, again, my friend, I miss being in the studio with you, seeing uh, your shining face face to face. 
I'm hoping that soon we will be together. We appreciate your feedback and your comments. And based on this show, where we tried to answer some of the questions that we are getting from the listeners, again, stay in touch with us. You can reach us through our email at flight safety detectives with an S at gmail.com. You can definitely go through our website as well. We appreciate your comments. We appreciate your suggestions for shows. We're trying to uh, incorporate more of those now. And of course, we're always looking for sponsors and donations because we do want to take our show to the next level. We do want to provide. And actually, if things work out, we do it on a more frequent basis so we can address more more subjects and stories of aviation and aviation safety. So with that being said, John, again, I hope you stay safe. I'm looking forward to talking to you next week for our next show. And uh, hopefully we'll be seeing each other very soon. Yes. Everybody, fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.